I'm Neil Barton, a private investigator in Washington, D.C. You're listening to The Background Report. I interviewed Greg Kading for this episode. Greg is a retired LAPD detective and author of the book Murder Rap, the untold story of the Biggie Smalls and Tupac Shakur murder investigations. Greg's book was made into a documentary called Murder Rap that can be watched on Amazon Prime Video, and the USA Channel also recently dramatized his book in a series called Unsolved. On September 7, 1996, Tupac was riding shotgun and Suge Knight was driving as the two of them headed towards Suge's new nightclub in Las Vegas. While they were stopped at an intersection, a white Cadillac pulled up alongside them and one of its passengers emptied a magazine full of 40 caliber rounds into Suge's BMW. Tupac was fatally wounded in the attack. Fast forward to March 9th, 1997. Biggie Smalls has just left a massive, overcrowded party at the Peterson Auto Museum in Los Angeles. As his entourage started to drive away, a Chevy Impala pulled up alongside the SUV Biggie was riding in and shot him dead with several 9mm rounds. From 2005 to 2009, Greg Kading headed the federal task force that ultimately solved these murders. Hey, Neil. Hey, Craig. How's it going? Good, buddy. So, you wrote the book seven years ago or so now. Do you ever get tired of talking about the Biggie Smalls and Tupac case? <sighs> That's a great question, and y- yes and no. I mean, it's a it's a subject that I'm well versed in, so I enjoy talking about it and actually having, you know, even debate about it. But it does get tiring when you're when people that you talk to um, don't have good reasoning abilities and they don't they, just, they don't follow you know logical processing, and so it gets frustrating sometimes when you're dealing with people that uh, you just can't recognize fact versus belief. Yeah, the interesting thing is you're still willing to uh, discuss and debate with those people, you know, and have a dialogue with them. Yeah, I think it's important, you know, to, you know, we all have a responsibility to kind of set history straight. And uh, if you're in a position to, to help do that, then I think you bear some responsibility. I don't, it's also, you know, just you've got a lot of energy invested in this subject. And so it kind of pays dividends when you can help people recognize, you know, something that's important to them and help them, you know, help them find some, you know, some reality within it, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And you self-published your book, right? I did. All right. So obviously you probably didn't do it for the money. What was the number one driving reason that you did do it? Well, the number one driving reason I did it, regardless of whether it was self-published, was just to get the information out there. Cause I felt that, uh, like I said, there's a responsibility when you know something um, to share it especially when it has to do with something as important as, um, you know, the, the murders and the deaths of these two, of these two people. And so it's always been about just educating and sharing information that the public didn't have. But, you know, there was a component to this originally when um, I first wrote the manuscript for the book or I wrote with somebody at a ghostwriter. You know, the, the uh, publishing rights were bought by um, a major New York publisher but once they saw that we were putting some allegations in there against Puffy Combs, uh, they decided not to publish the book, and they gave me a manuscript back, and so that's why I self-published. I heard you say in one other interview, I think, that Netflix had a similar kind of scared reaction. They were thinking about taking on the documentary you know, based on the book, and then they made a business decision and said, well, we don't want to make Puffy Combs mad. Well, I think it was... Was it Netflix originally? It might have been. That was with the documentary. Yeah. Um, obviously, Netflix doesn't have a problem with the the scripted series, which just came out on you know Unsolved because they're 
they're putting that in their library here in a couple of weeks. But yeah, the documentary, I think that they were uncomfortable with for the same reason that the publisher was uncomfortable with the book. You know, they, they, they do business with, what is it? Uh, not Bad Boy, but uh, what's Puffy's uh, Revolt, I think it is. Oh, it's no longer called Revolt. like Bad Boy Records? No, I think, I think Combs has another, you know, company business aside from Bad Boy called Revolt, Revolt TV or whatever it is, you know, whether it's through, um, you know, his talent agency or whatever, they all have these relationships and do business together. And so they have to be delicate with, you know, what projects they support. Yeah. You know, if it's uh, not the best interest of that business relationship. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So you had a long, successful career with LEPD, like 20-some-odd years. You received medals for your heroism and bravery, and but you were kind of dealt a rough hand as a kid. You know, that was one of the first things that jumped out at me from the book, right from the start, is this kind of nomadic lifestyle that your mother had you living, living out of tents and campgrounds and things like that. Could you tell me how you encountered this guy, Wyatt Hart, how you ran into him, and he ended up agreeing to kind of be a father figure to you yeah and i appreciate you asking that question you know because that's uh that that's very personal that i i do i i would like to share that so thank you for asking that um it's not a question that's been asked before so yeah i grew up you know single mom and you know just kind of you know, trying to raise three kids and make ends meet so there it was it's not the easiest but it's also i think you know those kind of things forgive me the background noise no it's okay um, it's fine those kind of things, you know, prepare you better for life. You know, sometimes school hard knocks puts you in a better place in order to deal with some of the difficulties that that, uh, that life brings. So I look back at it all as just, you know, wonderfully. It's always the silver lining. It's always like it was a good thing. But we did kind of struggle, and I didn't really have much of a father figure early on in my uh, early teenage years. And I was a little bit wayward and, you know, getting into trouble. And I was playing Pop Warner football, and one of the guys on my team who became one of my best friends, a guy named Todd Hart, his dad was the coach of our team. And because of the friendship that uh, I had with Todd, you know, his dad ultimately thought, well, you know, this kid's probably not the best influence <laughs> for my son, so I'll take him under my wing and shape him yeah. up and get him, on, get him going in the right direction, and then everybody wins. So that's ultimately what happened. He cared enough to look after me and give me some guidance and some, some advice and, you know, even took me into their home for years and, and, uh, and then led me on to a, towards the path of being a police officer. Oh, that's great, man. Nice break you got running into the him, you know? Yeah, it really, really was. So I was wondering, can you tell me about your career a little bit and how you became an expert on gangs? So when I got to the LAPD, I was assigned after the academy. I went to a really active division in South Central LA called Newton Division, and it was one of the one of the South Central divisions of Los Angeles, where uh, they're just you know inundated with gang activity. So right off the bat, you're introduced to it because a large percentage of the crimes are being committed by gangs. And then you just begin to specialize more and more into you know graffiti and reading graffiti and then recognizing gang members and how they operate and who's who in the zoo. And so it's just like a you know an evolution of an education. And uh, then I got into our gang unit, and then a gang task force, and it just always seemed to be where I focused most of my attention. Of course, wherever there's gangs, there's narcotics. Sure. So there was always a narcotic component to um, these gang investigations, and then every other crime that that are committed, you know, robberies and car thefts, and ultimately murder that takes place 
all becomes kind of incorporated in this broader gang context. I understand, you know, from reading your book and other books I've read about gangs and everything, they, they live by different code as far as not being friendly with police officers and maybe they don't always value human life as much as someone like me or you would. But does any part of your, you know, any part of that learning experience for you or becoming an expert on gangs, does any part of that involve actually kind of gaining trust from any of them or building some kind of relationship so that they're willing to talk to you and give you information? Or was it all just, you know, repeatedly arresting them and doing surveillance and things like that that you got your knowledge from? Yeah, another great question. Um, I think the best, most effective gang investigators or narcotic investigators, whatever it might be, is to fully understand the culture. And you can't do that if you're always at odds. You know, you do need to sometimes build a relationship where people can share information with you, you can share information with them, and it's in your both mutual interests to kind of form alliances. And so I would, you know, whether it's certain drug dealers or certain gang members, build rapports. And with those rapports, you know, they benefit because sometimes they get in trouble and you can help them out. In return, they give you information you you need to, to solve bigger mysteries and to accomplish better things. And so it becomes an interdependent thing, um, but it's best not to always look at it as us versus them, you know, or yeah. versus bad. It's sometimes you have to understand where they come from, how they got there, be sympathetic to it, and then forge relationships and see how you can help each other out. You were chosen for this task force because of your gang expertise. That was a big part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How soon did it become apparent to you that Biggie Small's murder was related to Tupac Shakur's murder? Well, we went into it with that, um, uh, not so much a presumption of that, but completely open-minded to the idea that, you know, here's two murders. They're very similar in style. They happen within uh, six months of one another. Uh, it's very evident that there's been conflict and association going on with the two crew, or, you know, between the crews. And, uh, you know, there's well-known conflict between uh, Suge and Puffy, well-known conflict between Tupac and Biggie, and of course the well-known conflict between the gangs that they associated with. So it was not a stretch to just assume that from the beginning. Yeah. Um, and you know, but of course we're open-minded to the fact that that may not be the case. That maybe they weren't related. And so we explored everything with an open mind. Um, but all of the circumstantial evidence was definitely supporting that contention that they were related. I understand that you federalized the task force uh, soon after it was formed. And I was wondering, because I don't have law enforcement experience myself, can you talk a little bit about some of the benefits of uh, taking your task force federal? Sure. Um, The the biggest, I think, advantage is is the resources and the money, Um, because we can declare these, you know, under a task force configuration, especially when, when we do like what's known as an OCDEFT, an organized crime drug enforcement task force uh there's funding there's pockets of money that are available and allocated for those investigations and with the more money the better your resources are and the more resources you have the more reach you have so it's it's really comes down to being about the money but also recognizing that within different agencies they bring something else to the table you know you have with the atf guys that are specialists in tracking firearms and guys in the dea that are specialized in in narcotic activity and 
So all of these things that, that we wanted to address, best to use people and resources that are already equipped to do that. And just wondering, are there any drawbacks to that ever? Is there a risk that you're going to have to give up control of the case at some point and they might take in a direction you don't want them to? Yeah, there are. there's, there's that risk. Uh, I don't know how real that risk is as it plays it out practically. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always going to be different personalities and different ideas about how to approach an investigation. And sometimes there's even policy issues that interfere. You know, for instance, the FBI might have a policy about how to continue or how to conduct surveillance. And maybe the LAP does things a bit different that is in contrast to their policy. So these little considerations take place and they have to be worked out, but they don't ultimately interfere that much. For instance, back when we interviewed Keefe D and got his confession, the FBI at that time had a standing policy that they don't surreptitiously tape record interviews. Really? But of course, the LAPD, we did, that we did. And so that type of thing has to be discussed if we're going to go into this jointly. Whose policy are we going to comply with? So there's those little yeah. issues that that take place. And, and again, you know, it goes back to you got different personalities and different ways of looking at things. And you just need to, you, you need to have a strong leader and you need everybody in the task force to recognize that there can only be one case agent if it's going to work efficiently. You can't have five chefs in the kitchen or 10 chiefs in the teepee, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it only works if you, if you recognize somebody needs to be in charge at times. Between the time the initial investigation into Biggie Small's murder in 1997 and when this task force was formed around 2005, I think it was, right? 2006. 2006. What was going on between those years? I know you weren't involved in it yet, but do you know what was happening with the case between those years? Did it run cold? Did the original detectives just run out of leads? Yeah, it ran cold and it had a bunch of kind of hiccups along the way. You know, back in 97 after, I'm sorry, 96, Tupac got murdered. Las Vegas didn't make a tremendous amount of headway because they weren't getting the cooperation they needed from the people that are in a position to help them. You know, they were being provided misinformation and false information, and they just weren't getting the kind of cooperation that would have allowed them to really make effective headway. And so Tupac runs into some dead ends um, as far as the investigation goes, and it becomes frustrating for the investigators. And then Biggie gets killed, and of course, to a lesser degree, there was more cooperation in the Biggie case. Um, But the information that was being provided wasn't extremely helpful. It's like we didn't get a license plate, um, unfortunately, of the dark um, Impala that drove by and was used to kill Biggie. We didn't have, you know, other than very vague descriptions of the shooter. And um, so we didn't have a lot to go on. And considering the amount of people that were there and people that were in a position to know, it, it was a little bit um, discouraging to, to not get better information. Yeah. Was it surprising to you that despite how crowded it was there on the street that no one got the tag number of that Impala? Or do you think everyone was just in shock, you know, and it took everyone by surprise? And I know the guy really gunned it out of there quickly, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised at all. It's disappointing, as I said, because it would have been so helpful to have got that. But you certainly can't blame anybody um, for not being in a position to do that or not doing that. Um, These things happen really fast. Your first thing is self-protection. So you're going to duck down, get out of the way. You know, know, most of these people don't run towards gunfire. (laughs) Right, Um, right, yeah. You know, so it's not surprising at all that no plate was gotten. 
Um, unfortunately, cameras back then didn't work as effectively. They weren't at the intersections the way they are today. And, you know, those, we didn't have technology advanced to complement the, the case that we might have today. So I'm not surprised that, again, there was still a, a, a real reluctancy to fully cooperate with law enforcement from the people who are in a position to really know. And yeah. so it opened up the doors for a lot of speculation, a lot of kind of conspiratorial thinking, and that ultimately led the case in the wrong direction for a long period of time. Yeah, speaking of that lack of cooperation, I understand Sean Combs was, I think, in the next vehicle, either in front or behind when Biggie was filled up with bullets. And if my best friend or someone I cared about deeply was killed, I'd really be bothering the police a lot. I'd I, Whatever, I'll bring a sleeping bag to the police station and camp out. I'd want to help out however I can. So how cooperative was Sean Combs when this initially happened? Did he sit down for any interviews at all with the police without lawyering up? Well, he he did sit down with lawyers, and those lawyers did kind of run interference about how the um, interrogation or interview would go. And so, you know, it's never it's never uh, unwise, you know, to have a lawyer with you, especially Mm -hmm. if you're in a position where you're going to be divulging information that doesn't reflect favorably on you. But you make a great point, and I think this is a huge point: is that if if this person was somebody that you cared and loved as much as you claimed and was important to your business and company as, as he was, uh, as he was to bad boy, you would think that your reaction would be different, that you would be posting rewards and telling everybody that you know, go to the police, tell them what you know. We got the opposite of that. You know, he's telling people within his organization, you know, keep your mouth shut. If you're going to be interviewed, make sure you have my lawyers with you and all of these indicators that he has something to hide. And as we now know, uh, you know, there was a good reason for him to be, you know, playing it that way. Yeah, he certainly did have something to hide. Yeah, I do. I remember I was a freshman in college when uh, Tupac and Biggie were both killed. Even back then, I was kind of struck by Sean Combs' general silence on the topic, except for he would put on, like, you know, lovely memorial shows for Biggie on TV or whatever. You know, he wrote that song, I'll Be Missing You, you know, but yet he didn't, you're right, I don't remember him putting up a reward or, you know, answering questions from the media or anybody about the murder. Right. He wasn't supporting Valletta Wallace's lawsuit, which you would assume he would be doing if yeah, uh, sure. if if he had nothing to, you know, if he had nothing to hide. Uh, I think that he always knew that the deeper the police got into it, the more likely things would trace back to Vegas, the more likely things would trace back to his affiliation with both uh, Zip and, and the Southside Crips. And then once that happens, we can start connecting the dots. And I think he recognized that it's not in his interest to have those dots connected. Yeah. And speaking of the Crips, uh, you mentioned Keefe D, this guy Dwayne Davis, I guess, or Dwayne Kevin Davis. I forgot how what his exact real name was, but... How did it come to your attention that he might have information you were looking for that was relevant to your investigation? Well, we knew that uh, that Dwayne Davis was both at the Peterson Auto Museum uh, the night that Biggie was killed. So we knew he was there. Uh, we knew that there was an association with uh, him and Bad Boy Records. And we knew that he and his nephew, Orlando Anderson, were in Las Vegas when Tupac was killed and that his nephew was the one that was attacked you know, in the MGM by Tupac shortly before the shooting. So, you know, he was directly connected to both of those incidents. You know, so, of course, he's a person of interest, and we believe he knew he knew what had happened. So that's how he got on our radar. His name is Dwayne 
Keith Davis. Okay. And that from his middle from his middle name is derived his nickname, which is Keithy D. Keith Davis, Keithy D. And that was then kind of ebonically evolved into Keithy D. Just for your listeners, how do you get Keithy D out of Okay. Keith? It's Keithy D. All right, all right. <laughs> so it's just free <laughs> yeah. playing. Yeah, I see what you're saying. The interviews that were in your documentary, the tapes that you played, he kind of mumbles a lot. Do you have trouble understanding people like that, or because you've been working gangs so long, it, were you able no, to hear No, not him? really. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of that, that street slang, and you get you get accustomed to some of the terminology that's not otherwise popular. They're just the way these some of these people from, from this area and from those streets talk. So you become kind of accustomed to it, and you probably are a little bit more insightful as to what's being said. He does mumble a lot, but I understand, you know, 95% of what he had to say. And then, you know, you go back and you re-listen to it, put things into context, and you can figure it all out pretty well. But it is a little tough sometimes, I think, for yeah, for this. So obviously this guy is a lifelong crip. He's not going to talk to you voluntarily just to help. So you brought trouble to him, right? You brought a drug case down on him for the purpose of gaining leverage? Yeah, exactly. History had proven that people are more likely to cooperate when it's in their best interest to cooperate. It comes from a culture where cooperating is despised. And so you've got to figure out a way to overcome that barrier and, and make them want to cooperate. So that's that was the, the tactical approach and it's proven itself to work over and over and over and over through law enforcement history and it's a technique that's used every single day in agencies all over the country so you know we get them into a corner and then say all right what's up because otherwise you just talk to them on the street why you know it's not in their best interest to cooperate so you have to give them a reason to yeah so he spilled the beans on everyone you learned from him that sean combs paid a guy or offered to pay a lot of money to a guy named zip martin who was a go-between between you know puff daddy and keefy d and he said something along the lines of when he was in front of a crips i'd give anything for those dudes heads and he was talking about suge and tupac right correct and I've seen you say in other interviews that he did this to add context to it. He was scared for his life. But I guess for me, it's hard to follow the logic that if Tupac and Suge Knight are dead, that these rap wars and the gang war is going to suddenly cease and he'll be safe. Well, you've got to keep it, you know, let's keep it a limit to what was the real beef. You know, we, we generalized it as an East Coast, West Coast thing. We even generalized it as a label thing. But really it just comes down to these individuals. And so those are the people that he had an issue with, and for good reason. Sure, yeah. Um, You know, so you put it into, like, you you personalize it and put yourself in that position, and you can almost see him being desperate and scared and making a comment like that. You know, I I always try to provide the caveat that I don't think Sean Combs really realized fully what he was asking for and saying. Um, I think he was desperate and boasting, and uh, because of his, not persona, but because of his place in that genre of music. It's not like he could be known as a guy who's going and crying to the police department or to the FBI for help. Right. You know, he'd lose all this street credibility in a genre of music where street credibility is everything. So you can see why he wouldn't take those, you know, conventional means of seeking help when people are threatening your life or your life. So it, it makes perfect sense. Okay. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, an opportunity arose where the people that he had made those comments to were in a position to act on them, and that's exactly what happened in Las Vegas. Yeah, it was almost kind of a terrible, perfect timing because Orlando had just caught a beating from Suge and Tupac a few hours earlier. 
and he was the one that mm-hmm. emptied the clip into a kind of a terrible storm that all came together. Absolutely. Had Tupac not attacked Orlando Anderson, there's a very, very good chance Tupac would be alive today, or at least he would not be have gotten killed at the, at the hands of those guys. Attacking Orlando Anderson was a fatal mistake. Yeah. I don't know if you believe in karma. You know, there's four guys in that car that pulled up and gunned down Tupac, and three of them are dead. I guess that's kind of interesting that none of them lived very long after that event, even though they didn't get caught by law enforcement. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you can call it karma. I, I, I typically use the term divine justice. That I believe yeah. that outside of even law enforcement, you know, there's, there's forces at play, and uh, we all have to deal and be held accountable for the things that we do. And, you know, Orlando Anderson, the one who shot Tupac, he was the first to go. He died in the exact same violent manner that he had executed upon Tupac. Same with Terrence Brown, the driver. He was equally as badass as Orlando Anderson and had as many shootings under his belt as Orlando did. So he dies in the same type of violent encounter on the streets in Compton and gets executed and killed. DeAndre Smith, the other guy in the back, you know, he's the guy that doesn't want to shoot Tupac. He says, no, I don't want the gun. Don't put it in my hands. And then, you know, he dies years later of natural causes. Uh, morbid, then, it was course, like morbid he, obesity, right? Something like that. Right. Yeah. His health issues. But, you know, he doesn't want to shoot and he doesn't die that way either. So there's these kind of interesting dynamics to the whole thing if you look at things that way. And then, of course, Keith D, who confessed to it all and made good on his proffer session, he's out there and but he's now known as a snitch and as an informant and his yeah. own gang kind of despises him. I'm sure. And so, you know, that's, and, and I understand the reason he did that recent interview is because he doesn't care anymore because he's dying of cancer. So there's that. I was going to ask yeah. you if you have any idea what he's up to these days. Well, if you've seen the recent Death Row Chronicles interviews, he's still out there kind of boasting about his involvement in the murder of Tupac Shakur. Um, and it, it's very evident that he was him and the other four guys in the car, the other three guys in the car, were the primary suspects, not even suspects, but the perpetrators. You know, he lives in Las, lives out in Las Vegas, and I think he's just kind of waiting to see how this all plays out. During his proffer session with you, I was struck even then by the disregard or kind of lack of guilt he seemed to feel about it. when they After they ditched the car that the murder was committed from, he said they were walking down the street, and there goes the ambulance carrying Tupac and Suge, and he said that was funny as a motherfucker. It's like, why is it funny there's a dying guy in a truck going by you that you just caused? Well, you know, it's just a different perspective on the value of human life. And it comes from a street where, you know, or from a place where human life isn't always valued. And we've seen a lot of people die. And, you know, his, his own nephew, Orlando Anderson, who had just been in that fight with Tupac, you know, he'd shot and killed people before that. And so when Tupac attacks Orlando and Orlando and then decide to retaliate, that makes perfect sense in their world. It, it's not only appropriate, but necessary. Yeah. in their world. Hey, just curious, Greg, did you see the recent HBO documentary, The Defiant Ones? I did. Do you remember that segment with Sean Combs talking about that time period? I did. <laughs> it was pretty remarkable what he said, wasn't it? He quit talking because he said, this isn't going to end well at all if I keep going on this topic mm-hmm. or something like that. Remember that? I do. Yeah, it was very and it was very interesting uh, to see his mannerisms and his facial expressions and his response to that because it, it certainly, I think, resurrected those those perspectives and views that he had back at the time that these murders happened. 
Yeah. Back to the Biggie murder. How did it come to your attention that Wardell Faust and Teresa Swan, those two people, how did they come to your attention that these are people you want to look into more or talk to possibly? Well, with Poochie, Wardell Faust, you know, his name had always been kind of mixed up in the investigation. He was an associate of Shug's. We knew that. His uh, his name had come up on other murder reports related to uh, Shug Knight and other individuals. And so we were aware of him. We just weren't looking at him as a suspect until we hooked up with one of Shug's baby mamas, who we call Teresa Swan, and she tells us about what happened after Shug was shot in Vegas, and Tupac was killed, and Shug was pissed, and you know, we had her in the same type of corner that we had put Keefe D into. She was looking at going away to prison and losing the custody of her kid, and so we put her into a position where it was in her best interest to cooperate, and she tells us that Shug had solicited her to go contact Wardell's spouse and retaliate against Iggy Smalls, Bad Boy Records. And so that's how we, we got her in a corner. She divulged the information. We corroborated it, and that's how we got to the answers. And this guy, Wardell Faust, the Biggie Smalls, you know, Poochie Faust, who shot Biggie Smalls, he was hardcore, wasn't he? My impression from your book is he didn't do a lot of hanging out and socializing with Suge Knight, but he had no problem taking people out for him for the right price. Yeah, he, he was all about the streets and wouldn't hesitate to shoot somebody. He was at odds with another guy who was a previous death row associate named George Williams. Mm-hmm. And the two of them were kind of hunting each other down and uh, along with several other guys that were associated in that kind of core group of pirate gang members. And so, yeah, he his name had already come up. And then we found out about the fact that Sugar had given him an Impala that matched the description of the car used in Biggie's murder. And things start to just kind of come together for us. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, back to that whole you know divine justice aspect. Yeah. In, 2000, in 2002, he's riding his motorcycle up Central Avenue in Compton, and an assailant pulls up behind him with a uh, machine gun and shoots him 10 times in the back and kills him. He died in the same type of violent manner on the streets as what he had imposed upon Biggie. Sure, yeah. Another guy that he wasn't even into his 40s yet, I don't think, when he got gunned down, was he? Oh, obviously, there wasn't a lot of humor in your book, but there was one part where I laughed out loud really hard, is that when, in order to help Teresa Swan cooperate a little bit, you made up these bogus legal-sounding documents to make it look like Wardell Faust had confessed to the murder and fingered her as being involved before he died. And the part that really made me laugh is that you dated his signature with April Fool's Day, <laughs> April 1st, 1998, or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> it was a little sarcastic on our part. I think mm-hmm. that we, we we had already met with her and, and kind of gauged her intelligence and gauged her psychological disposition and, and felt like we could outsmart her. And I think that's what we did. And so there was a little bit of humor in there, but there, we weren't really concerned about being a her catching on because she just wasn't that clever. Um, She's tough though, right? I mean, just a lifelong criminal. I think you called her a worthy opponent, right? Yeah, I guess to the degree that she had something that we were interested in Mm -hmm. and uh, she was was evasive and coy at first. She was scared. So we had to overcome those issues. So in that sense, yeah, she's a worthy opponent. But at the same time, she's a girl with kids and she's in love with Suge and she's vulnerable you know, she wasn't tough like gangster tough. Yeah. She was just, you know, she just had been living a life of, of fraud and, and kind of taking advantage of things, but not tough in the sense that, that she's scary. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. So I understand it was Valletta Wallace's lawsuit gets dismissed, 
then the risk of a multi-million judgment is no longer there, and they took you out of the case because they knew it would dry up and blow away if they took you out of the task force. Is that right? Yeah, they. I think they they kind of did the math and talked to the district attorney's office and said, you know, what's the what's the feasibility of prosecuting this thing? And it was going to be tough because of all the damage that had already been done to the investigation and all the allegations against the police department and this and that. So I. I think they just kind of weighed it all out and said, well, we're out from under the lawsuit. How much more money and effort and manpower are we going to dedicate towards this pursuit? They made a kind of political decision yeah. to disband the, the task force and, and, and to let it go because they didn't think it was prosecutable. I disagree. I think that there was enough to still be done to bring it to a level where it could be effectively prosecuted. Uh, they didn't feel that way. I think they realized that I wouldn't give up. And so, you know, put me on the bench and move on. Do you think it's possible if they would have let the task force go forward and the investigation continue? Do you think it's possible that Sean Combs could be sitting in a cell next to Suge Knight right now? Yeah, it is actually possible. Maybe not sitting in a cell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if he has enough money. He has enough money to pay his bail. Any bail. Um, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, and, and it's a different situation than the one Suge's in. So I think that we could have actually brought it to the point where uh, indictments were were handed out and taking people to trial. I, I certainly think we could have reached that point. And, yeah. uh, and I think I think that's what everybody deserved. That's what justice demands. It was personally devastating to you when the uh, task force was disbanded effectively. Uh, how, you know, how long did it take you to kind of uh, process it and decide I'm going to turn my uh, grief into action. I'm going to write this book and, talk to people about the case and you know make a difference that way i mean how long was that process for you from being in shock and personal disappointment from turning it around it probably was just a matter of a couple months after the disappointment of it all and kind of the emotional um you know that let's see trying to choose the right words um after i got through kind of the emotional aspect of like i can't believe this just happened Um, to the point where I was like, well, what's the best thing for you to do, Greg? And I said, well, if this is going to get shelved and it's never going to be made public, then I'll take that responsibility. And so probably within a couple months, I had decided that I was going to pursue a book and reveal everything that we knew in the investigation, because otherwise the public would just never know. It would all be just buried in those case files that are archived. So I quickly decided... But in order for me to do that, I also knew that I had to retire. I couldn't publish that book and still work for the LAPD because they would, they would say that's a conflict of interest. Yeah. And so I planned on my retirement. I reached my retirement date and, and, and bounced and then got the book written. All right. And are you doing private investigations now? I am. Actually, yeah, I've got a company and uh, we stay really busy, actually. Oh, that's good. What kind of cases do you guys do? Mm-hmm. If you don't mind telling me, maybe you can't talk about it, but what kind of cases? Yeah, do they you? vary. We it, they vary. You know, obviously, uh, you know, we do extortion cases against wealthy people. We do mm-hmm. fraud investigations, theft investigations, things that uh, that law enforcement either doesn't have time or resources for, uh, but the victims of those those cases, you know, are, are, are just, they still want to see some action. So they hire guys like me and we go out and see what we can do to solve the problem. 
Obviously, there's infidelity cases. We did a really interesting art theft case that uh, we chased some artwork all over the world. Oh, cool! Finally found it and got it got it returned to its owner. Really? Stuff like that. Right now, right now, currently, I'm really interested in the aspect of financial elder abuse, where elderly people are going into court-appointed guardianship, and then those guardians steal all these people's money and and, and just basically bankrupt their estate and uh, and leave nothing to the families. It's a a huge problem in our country right now that I just recently became aware of. So me and my, my guys are all kind of devoting our interest, hopefully, towards helping that situation. Oh, you have, you have employees working under you, too? Yeah, we all, we have, you know, I have a company and I have people that work for me and uh, oh. subcontract to uh, a, a variety of really good investigators. So, yeah, um, yeah, it's it's like a team effort. Oh, cool. Were there any challenges coming over to be a private investigator from law enforcement where you don't have the same authority or access to the same databases and things like that? Did you find it challenging at all to go into private investigations, given your career and what you were used to? Yeah, it's both easier and harder. A lot of information is available. People aren't aware how accessible a lot of personal information is. Yeah. Um, in law enforcement, you can access it easier, but that doesn't mean that we can't access it through other channels. And so, um, you know, that the lack of that authority does make it more challenging. But at the same time, we don't have to play by the same rules right. that law enforcement does. You know, law enforcement has its policies and procedures, and we're much more flexible. We, we can do things without having to worry about what the department says. Well. Mm-hmm. Greg, yeah. it was it was great talking to you. If you're ever in the D.C. area, you know, and you have time, let's meet up for a beer or something. You know, hit me up. I was there. I I was there yesterday morning, Neil. Oh no way! Really? <laughs> I could have. Yeah, done... I was at. I was at. I was at the uh, World Elder Abuse Conference right there in the Capitol, and I was there. I flew home yesterday afternoon. Oh no, kidding! Oh man, we could have done mm-hmm. this uh, interview in person. Oh, it would have been no, great. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Well, uh, come back. Oh, well. Yeah, yeah. Come back again sometime. I got a guest room too, okay. so you always got a place to stay. You know. Great to know, man. In that case, I'll probably come right back out. Oh yeah, anytime. You're welcome. <laughs> so what, you, you have a, you, uh, are you a dog person? I think I saw a picture of you with a couple of bulldogs. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. My family's a dog family. My wife has to have dogs, and so they're always around. My son has a big dog, and so yeah, we've got dogs. Yeah, I want to get one. I'm working on it with my. I'm working on convincing my wife to be okay with it, but I'm hoping to get one. Think soon. long and hard. Think long and hard about it, man. They uh, really they require almost the same responsibility as a kid. They're a lot of work to, if you're going to do them right. You know, if you do them justice, you got to pay attention to them, man. Well, I mean, bulldogs especially, right? Because I mean, they're a little higher yep. maintenance. You got to clean their folds, the their fat folds or whatever. Make sure. Yeah, there's a lot of different. A lot of different bulldog breeds and a lot of different dispositions, and you know some can be aggressive, and so that brings things into consideration, and you know, and so, um, and you and you do they have they don't have great health histories, and so you've got to really take care of them. So that's a it's a tough breed, and it requires a, a lot of attention. All right, well, hey, thanks again, Greg. It was great talking oh, to you. Thanks. Let me know if you're in the D.C. area again, okay? All right, Neil. Thanks, pal. 
All right, take care. Thanks to Greg Kading, and thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music of this podcast. Kevin's website is incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H. Don't forget to check out Murder Rap, the book, and the accompanying documentary by the same name on Amazon Prime Video. Also, make sure you see Unsolved, the series based on Greg's book on the USA Channel. As you heard Greg say during the interview, Unsolved will be coming to Netflix at some point in the near future. 